Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 47, it says, And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now his betrayer had given them a sign saying, Whomever I kiss, he's the one. Seize him. Immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. But Jesus said to him, Friend, why have you come? Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. And suddenly one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand, drew his sword, struck the servant of the high priest, and cut off his ear. But Jesus said to him, Put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he will provide me with more than twelve legions of angels? How then could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? In that hour, Jesus said to the multitudes, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple, and you did not seize me. But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled then all the disciples forsook him and fled. Jesus is a remarkable king. He allows himself to be betrayed by a friend in verses 47 through 50. In one sense, we already know that betrayal is one of those words that can't take place with strangers or enemies. By very definition, only the people who you love and who love you are capable of betrayal. Jesus allows himself to be arrested by his subjects in verses 51 through 53 and again in verse 55. And then he'll submit to his heavenly father, allowing God's word, that is prophecy, to run its course in this in verses 54 and 56. We discover that Jesus is in control even when the world seems to be spinning out of control. And that's a principle that you should take to heart right at this very moment, that even when things seem to be out of control, Jesus is in control. The Lord Jesus is going to submit to the will of his father. Jesus is going to submit to the word of his father. Again, think about this. It is when things are out of control, when the world seems to be flying apart at the seams, when life seems to hand you a setback or a heartbreak or a trial. And I know that this past year has been just that for some of you. It has been a setback. It's been a heartache. It has been a trial. It's this last year that you've lost your loved one. It's this last year that the husband or the wife has said, I am through with you. It's this last year that you received the diagnosis or the sickness. Things seem to be out of control. What do you think about when you hear the word submit? Do you think of a screaming husband pounding his Bible in anger or fear? Do you think about a parent pleading with a child? Do you think about a pastor pounding his pulpit, begging the congregation to give in or give up or give away something? What exactly is submission? Well, in a very real sense, it means we subordinate our personal desires, we waive our rights for the good of another. We do this for the one we love. 
We do this because we submit to the Lord. And I happen to be teaching in Ephesians chapter 5 in the last couple of weeks. In the book of Ephesians, that's where it says that we're to submit to one another. And wives are called to submit to their husbands. And children are called to submit to their parents. Thomas Akempis wrote, Carry the cross patiently. And with perfect submission. And in the end, it will carry you. Jesus is going to submit to the cross. Submission allows us to value someone other than ourself. And it becomes crystal clear in the life of Jesus that he is going to submit to the will of God, to the word of God. But his submission is because he has you in mind. He's thinking about you. He submits. He yields to the Father's will in the Garden of Gethsemane. He will extend his cheek to a phony friend. He will offer himself up for betrayal. He submits to arrest. He offers himself in meekness to the mob. He submits not just to death, but to a painful death. And the other thing, he will submit alone. We all have to eventually submit to the word of God or the will of God. Or we will resist the will of God and we'll resist the word of God. We will submit or we will resist. If the passage is telling us anything over the last few weeks, it is there is a cup and there is a sword. We will submit or we will resist. Which one will we choose? The cup or the sword? And again, remember what Jesus is doing. He's still trying to teach his disciples a valuable lesson. We will choose to, we will choose to try to conquer and control or we will serve and submit. And those are the choices before us. Conquer, control, Serve, submit. Again, the agony in the Garden of Gethsemane is over. Jesus has submitted himself to the will of God. He will drink the cup of iniquity. Remember, that's the sins of all mankind. He will bear the wrath of his own father. Remember, that's the judgment for sin. The initiation of the cross has begun. And the journey to the cross, is it began in agony and it's going to continue with betrayal. There will be a frantic fight and a final miracle. Jesus performs this miracle in part to correct the mistake of a misguided disciple. The last miracle that appears other than the resurrection of Jesus himself in this part of the gospel or in the New Testament is Jesus is going to attach the ear of a person who one of his disciples has cut off. And in a way that's very, very comforting to me. That Jesus is in the business of sometimes correcting our mistakes in order to be free to do what God wants, we have to deal with the persistent problem of sin. And you see, there's something inside of us. There's something inside of us that longs for freedom. We want freedom. We desire freedom. We crave freedom. And I want to remind you of something, that God created you that way. It wasn't a mistake. He created you to crave freedom. The issue isn't whether or not freedom is a good thing. The issue is what are you going to do with your freedom? Are you going to use your freedom to submit and obey the, the, the Lord? Or are you going to use your freedom to resist and disobey the Lord? I read this week about um, the Secretary of State in the, in the state of Illinois. In the state of Illinois every year... Thousands of people each year request a license plate that reads, I'm number one. And so the secretary of the state is, is called upon to decide who gets that particular motor vehicle plate. He writes, it was a real problem. 
He said, I'm not about to assign it to someone and make thousands of people feel hurt. Guess what his solution was? He assigned it to himself. <laughs> well, again, it makes perfect sense to us, doesn't it? That we're coming up with a solution when a bunch of selfish people want to have their way. What do we do? Often we decide that we're going to have it our way. But Jesus is not going to opt for his way. He'll first of all submit to betrayal. Look what it says in verse 47. And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the elders of the people. It's interesting to me, in the text, it says, and while he was still speaking... What was he still saying? Remember, he has prayed the first prayer, the second prayer, the third prayer. Remember, he's been praying, not my will, but thy will be done. And so, again, it says, while he's still speaking in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus renews his decision. He's renewing his decision that he is going to do God's will, God's way. And this, again, gives us an immediate application, a nugget just for us it, it reminds us that we must make the decision to obey God in advance Jesus has been saying not thy will not my will but thy will be done not my will but thy will be done not my will but thy will be done now again I want you to see the insight this verse provides a bridge with the events of the Garden of Gethsemane to the arrest of Jesus. And because he has already made the decision that he is going to obey God, it gives you a clue of what you can do. Because the truth is, I guarantee you, I guarantee you that in this upcoming year, I guarantee you, you're going to be faced with a decision. To obey God or disobey God. And the only way that you're going to be able to obey God is if you make the decision in advance right now. You have to make the decision now. You have to say, Lord, I don't know what the future holds for me. I don't know what the choices I'm going to have to make. But Lord, I want to obey you. I want to honor you. I want to do it, and I want to do it in advance. And so like I said, Jesus is going to respond to his betrayal by offering yet another chance for friendship and relationship. Don't, again, miss the lesson. If we're to deal with the private betrayals that we experience in our life, whether it's coming from classmates or playmates, from family, friends, lovers, we have to first position in our hearts an attitude of submission to God's will and God's word. People will sometimes betray us simply because we want want to serve the Lord and we want to obey the Lord and we want to honor the Lord and if in your heart you're saying and that's part of your new years I'm not saying a resolution I'm not saying begging God to do things differently but I'm asking you that if in your heart you're saying you know what I want to be a different person I want to live my life differently this year. I want to honor God. I want to obey God. I want to be gracious and kind. I want to be generous instead of stingy. People will sometimes betray us simply because we want to serve the Lord and we want to accomplish his will. Note what happens. Judas arrives on the scene with an army. And according to the scriptures, Judas is motivated, remember, what we've already learned by greed. In John 12, 6, it says, This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box. Judas comes with a great multitude. And we know that there's a large crowd with him. John's gospel says that he came with a band of men. The word Band translates the word cohort, which is a technical term. A cohort was one-tenth of a legion. In the ancient world, a Roman legion was anywhere, it could be as small as 3,000 men, it could be upwards of 6,000 men. And so the word is an imprecise measurement. In this instance, it could mean that he came somewhere between with 50 men or 600 men. 
And so if you're imagining the scene where Jesus is being rushed and you're thinking of, you know, there's only a couple of dozen men, you're, you're, you're missing the point. Because almost certainly there were hundreds of men there. They came with swords and clubs. That means they're coming armed for battle. John's gospel in chapter 18 verse 3 says, Then Judas, having received a detachment, same word, cohort, of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came with lanterns, torches, weapons, It was probably a full moon because it's Passover. And because it's Passover and in the middle of the night, probably as you're approaching dawn, it's it's probably sometime past 2 o'clock, but before 6 o'clock, they're on the scene. They come with weapons and lights. Do you know why? Because they expect resistance. Maybe Judas told them, you have to understand something about this rabbi. There's something supernatural about him. I saw him heal the sick. I saw him give sight to the blind. He's brought people back to life. Think about that for just a moment. He has supernatural powers. It's going to take more than a handful of men to capture him. What happens if Jesus decides to resist? What happens if the disciples decide to resist? We already know the answer. If Jesus decided to resist, what would have happened? Could he have just said, you're all toast. And then they all become bits of burnt bread. That's possible. He could have done exactly that. There's no weapons ancient or modern that would have been sufficient to resist the power of Jesus. Here's part of the point, and you need to understand this. Jesus voluntarily submits. Think about that for you. Jesus submits in advance. Jesus voluntarily submits. It's interesting to me that modern enemies of Jesus and Christianity have equally foolish weapons. Note what they come with. Swords and clubs. Instead of lamps and swords, the people who oppose Jesus, who resist Christianity, they come with what they think is reason or progress. The modern modern weapons that they employ, they call scholarship, education, science, philosophy, psychology. As valuable as these weapons might be, they're no match for the light. But guess what? Remember, that's what people are going to come at you with. Well, you know, modern scholarship and modern education and modern science and thoughtful philosophy and psychology is going to give you a different answer to the problem that human beings face. And therein lies the great divide between us and them. You see, Jesus believed that the problem was sin. He always believed it was. And that it's going to require submission to a cross. You see, we live in a culture and a society that rejects the notion of sin and rejects the notion of a substitution for sin. Jesus is a threat. And just a little note, do any of these weapons pose a threat to you in knowing the will of God or the word of God? Have people come to you and they said, I need you to think this through and I I need you to be reasonable. Now, don't get me wrong. We as Christians do not oppose reason and we don't oppose logic and we don't oppose science. Uh, For the person who's listening to me right now and is thinking that the Christian is anti-intellectual, nothing could be further from the truth. 
We want to think it through. The Bible says, come, let us reason together, you and I. And then the next statement is, even if your sins are as scarlet, I will make them white as snow. When God is entering into the deliberations of what constitutes reasonable interaction, the Lord himself wants you to examine your heart and examine your circumstances. The multitude was a mixture of soldiers, priests, and temple guards. Luke's gospel includes chief priests, scribes, elders, the religious leaders, and the temple guards, and the Roman soldiers, I'm going to suggest to you, have come together to bring Jesus in. I think it's a perfect picture of the world. People with profound philosophical and ideological differences will unite to bring Jesus to trial, what is their common cause? A deep distrust and a hatred for Jesus. No wonder people can make common cause against you and against me. Because the Bible says that the whole world lies in the lap of the wicked one. It makes perfect sense to me. That Satan will join forces with the world in order to get you to do anything other than know God's will and love God's will and do God's will. In verse 48 it says, now his betrayer had given them a sign saying, whomever I kiss, he's the one, sees him. In the dark, Judas gives a prearranged signal. It's maybe the most famous signal of betrayal in the history of humanity. A kiss. Now, people are going, here's Judas. Okay, look, the guy that I kiss, he's the one, sees him. Now, why does he say that? Why doesn't he say, the guy who's glowing in the dark that's the one you're going to want to grab. See, you're laughing because you're thinking, wait a minute. He's not glowing in the dark. There isn't this darkness, and, and you see this group of guys, and the one glowing in the middle, he's the one you want. No. Pause for a moment and just let the text teach us for, some, for a moment. Jesus looks like a normal human being. He looks normal. If you went to the Bronco game this afternoon and you saw thousands of people rushing past you and they all look so very, very normal. Jesus looks normal. But what doesn't look normal is the betrayal because betrayal is ugly. Delilah betrays Samson to the Philistines. Absalom betrays David to his father. Jehu betrays Joram and then kills him. And there's something particularly disgusting when we betray with something as intimate as affection. It's one thing for someone to kiss you on your face and stab you in your back. And there's few things that are more disturbing than that. In ancient times, a lowly slave would kiss the master's feet. A defeated king would kiss the feet of his conqueror as a sign of respect and submission. A servant would kiss the back of the hand, and a favored servant would kiss the palm of the hand. A pupil would kiss his teacher only if the teacher extended the cheek to the student. It was not uncommon for a rabbi to be kissed by his disciples. And remember, Jesus says, I no longer call you servants, but friends. There's a friendship. There's a relationship. There's an intimacy. The kiss is a sacred symbol in most cultures. And to use it to set in motion the death of Jesus is placed a permanent impression even on the unbelieving world. You know how we know that? Just ask anyone today, maybe an unbelieving family member or friend, just ask this question. Hey, when I say the word Judas, what comes to your mind? 
That's right. Even the unbeliever will say, betrayal. Can you imagine ruining a name forever? It's interesting to me that Jezebel, no one names their children Jezebel anymore. It's just not a name that you would name your child. Yeah, let's call her Jezebel. No one names their child typically Ahab or Judas, even though it's a beautiful name. The name means praise. It means praise. In verse 49, it says, Immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. That expression, kissed him, isn't the usual word phileo, which is actually the word that is used in the earlier passage. It's an intensive form of the word. It's kata phileo, which means to kiss fervently or affectionately. One scholar, Cranfield, sees it as a prolonged kiss when it says immediately he went up to Jesus and said, greetings, rabbi, and kissed him. The indication in the text is that he did it repeatedly. He grabbed him. He held him. That he kissed him. The kiss of Judas provides a clue with just how low the human heart can sink in making its appeal to accomplish its own plan and its own purposes. Listen to this article from Brooklyn, New York. Quote, the wife and five small children of Jose Suarez, 23 years old, were found butchered in their Brooklyn apartment. Suarez was arrested, but denied even knowing the mother or the children. He was released and then rearrested the same day. That night, he confessed to the six murders. An assistant district attorney was present when he confessed, but the man was, was not told before he was questioned his right to have an attorney present. Suarez appeared before the state Supreme Court Justice Michael Kern. According to the ruling of the Supreme Court, there was nothing that the judge could do that the, he, but let the confessed murderer go free. Because he wasn't read his rights, his confession was not admissible as evidence. The judge said, quote, even an animal such as this one, and I think it's insulting to the animal kingdom, must be clothed with safeguards. This is a sad thing. It is repulsive. It makes any human being's blood run cold and his stomach turn to let a thing like this back on the streets, unquote. I give you this illustration because what kind of a person will bring himself to the point where he's willing to kill his wife and kill all of his children and pretend like it never happened. We understand a little bit about betrayal. I suspect each and every one of you understand a little bit about betrayal. But look what Jesus does in verse 50. Jesus said to him, Friend, why have you come? And then they came and they laid hands on Jesus and took him. Jesus submits to the betrayal. He will submit to the arrest. And he says to him, look what he says. J Jesus doesn't say, Judas. He doesn't say, you backstabbing traitor. He doesn't say what comes to my mind, snake, reptile. He doesn't say, What's wrong with you? How could you possibly do something like this? Jesus calls him friend. I want you to understand the full impact of that. Jesus is practicing what he is preaching. Jesus said, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you in Matthew chapter 5, verse 24. Jesus isn't conquered by the betrayal. He isn't going to allow the betrayal to fill him up with bitterness or hatred. The fact that Jesus still retains the word friend is an attempt to reach out to Judas. And think about that for just a moment. 
the question is intended to cause Judas to think about what he's doing. Do you think that you're entitled to hatred or bitterness for that cheating spouse, that backstabbing boss, that two-faced friend? And now all of a sudden we see in the text something that we really don't necessarily want to see because, again, one of two things is always true. We have been betrayed or we have betrayed someone else. If you had to be in one of the two categories, which would you prefer? I'm hoping that each and every one of you would say, I would rather be betrayed than be a betrayer. But Jesus is going to make it clear that he's not going to embrace hatred. He's not going to embrace bitterness. He's not going to allow hatred and bitterness to determine the decision-making process. Even at this very moment, he's reaching out to Judas and offering him an opportunity to reconsider his actions and to repent. Some Bible teachers translate this, friend, why have you come? Other Bible teachers suggest that there's some dispute on whether this is a question or whether it's a statement. If it's a statement like the NIV reads, it would say, friend, do what you are here to do. If it's a statement, it's Jesus' way of saying, you've made up your mind to do what you're going to do. I want you to pause for just a moment and take in deeply what Jesus is telling us. The way that Jesus deals with betrayers. He says, what you do, do quickly. If we're willing to submit to the Father, if we're willing to submit to the Son, if we're willing to submit to the Holy Spirit, We can even reach out to those who have betrayed us. This isn't willpower or magic. This is the power of God in us to exercise grace. This is an invitation for each and every one of us to be able to say, Lord, I want to deal with those who have hurt me the way that you deal with people who have hurt you. Look what it says. Then they came and they laid hands on Jesus and took him. And this was way more than one disciple could take. The disciple is filled with anger and rage. How could they do that to Jesus? How could this happen to Jesus? It's very, very difficult to communicate that anger and rage Unless you've ever experienced it yourself. Have you ever been in a situation where you saw something and you knew it was wrong, it was horrible, and it was terrible, and it was awful, and you felt like you couldn't do anything about it? Some of you have had experiences like that. When I was preparing this message, I was thinking about an experience I had when I was a very young man working for the Department of Social Services. It just so happened I was in an office and my mother happened to be working in the same office and she was the director, the supervisor of the department. And a person in the lobby, my mother came out to deal with a a person in the lobby and this person grabbed my mother and attacked her. So what do you suppose I did? I didn't say, hey, can't we all just be calm here? I grabbed that guy, got his arm in an arm bar, smashed his head up against the wall, proceeded to break his arm. That's what happens when rage takes over. That's what happens when you're blinded by anger. My mother screamed, you're killing him. And I go, you're right. To me, restraint was letting him live. Peter took out a sword. He took matters into his own hands. Look what it says in verse 51. And suddenly one of those who was with Jesus. (laughs) 
stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. We all know it's Peter. Matthew and Mark omit Peter. But haven't you ever wondered why? Why is Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel silent about revealing his name? I'm going to give you just a common sense explanation, at least from my perspective. In my view, Matthew and Mark are actually circulating. And that it would put Peter at risk if, if, if his name appears. Can you imagine Romans are reading and they, 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 they hear about a guy who took out a sword and, and uh, assaulted someone in authority. Matthew and Mark omit Peter's name, I think, for good reason. It could very well be that Peter was still alive when those gospels were written and would have provided ammunition for the arrest. John's gospel gives the name of the servant as Malchus. Luke provides the details. Apparently, when the temple guard grabbed Jesus, pandemonium breaks out. People are pushing and shoving in Luke twenty-two forty-nine. It says, when those around him saw what was going to happen, they said to him, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And Peter doesn't even wait for an answer. He's going, strike now, ask questions later. It's easier to ask forgiveness than permission. (laughs) No, you're laughing because maybe some of you understand that. Peter's trained as a fisherman. He's not trained as a soldier. I believe that Peter's aiming for the servant's head. And he misses. I have every reason to believe that Peter wanted him dead. Did Peter use the same knife that he used earlier to cut the sacrificial lamb? Peter was a Christ follower. The message of loving your enemy got lost in that moment. Have you ever cut someone's ear off trying to protect Jesus from the onslaught of evil. Luke twenty two fifty one 51 says, but Jesus answered and said, permit even this. And he touched his ear and he healed him. In Luke's gospel, we discover that Peter does this. Jesus picks up the ear and goes, pops it right back on the guy's head. It's like my dad would say, no body, no crime. Hey, you cut that guy's ear off. Hey, wait a minute. His ear is back on. Yeah, it's hard to prosecute a person for a crime if there's no evidence of that crime. And like I said, this is the last recorded miracle Jesus performs in the gospel accounts if you exclude the resurrection itself. And I take great comfort that Jesus corrects the mistake of a misguided disciple. Peter's ready to kill the guy. Jesus stands ready to heal the guy. And that's the contrast. I feel more sorry for Peter than I do for Malchus. I've never literally cut off a person's ear. But I did try to bite a guy's ear off in the sixth grade. It was wrong, I admit it. I've swung the sword of my sharp tongue and I've drawn blood. I know that I've left people hurting and smarting from the cruelty of my tongue. Jesus says, I want you to do things differently. Look what Jesus says in verse 52. Put your sword in its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Is this a proof text for gun control? I don't think so. This is really, the text isn't about gun control. The text isn't even about sword control. The text is about heart control. Do you really want to live by the sword? Do you really think that the best solution to solving problems is hacking them to pieces? John Corson writes, quote, You might want to remember this verse the next time you feel inclined to chop up some believer. Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. But those who are unsheathing the sword indiscriminately and causing injury needlessly will die by the sword, unquote. In verse 53, it says, or do you not think that I can pray to my father and he will provide me more than 12 legions of angels? Remember what I said to you earlier? 
A Roman legion was on the short side, 3,000 soldiers, fully equipped, 6,000 soldiers. Do you remember what six times 12 is? You do the math. One angel killed 185,000 Assyrians in a single night in 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 35. If one angel could kill 185,000 soldiers in a single night, what do you suppose 12 legions of angels could do? Jesus, the angels could have just said, we're not just going to kill everyone in Jerusalem. We're going to kill everyone in Judea. We're going to kill everyone in the Roman Empire. We're going to make sure that everyone dies. But here's the point that Jesus is making. You don't need to protect Jesus or defend Jesus from God's will and God's word. That's part of the point. Jesus can defend himself. Peter uses the wrong weapon at the wrong time on the wrong person. The Bible says that the weapons of our warfare are spiritual. For though we walk in the flesh, we don't war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God. For the pulling down of strongholds, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Good thing Jesus heals this man. Because instead of three crosses on Calvary, there would have been... Four crosses on Calvary. Prophecy said Jesus is going to die between thieves. And God has a different plan for Peter. Peter has still some unfinished business with God. I want to draw your attention before we go to verse 54 to verse 55. It says, in that hour, Jesus said to the multitudes, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple and you did not seize me. This is strange. There seems to be times when God allows the powers of darkness to do what looks like have their own way, to have the upper hand. Jesus says, in that hour... What hour is that? It's the dark hour. It's the difficult hour. It's the painful hour. Why send a SWAT team for a Bible teacher? Again, because we know that even in dark times, Jesus is going to be exalted. Psalm 37.10, For yet a little while, and the wicked shall be no more. Indeed, you will look carefully for his place, but it shall be no more. The meek shall inherit the earth, and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. The overarching expression that the Bible gives is that there might be a temporary victory. For Satan and for darkness. But make no mistake about it. You only need to turn a few pages and you'll see that Jesus is going to come back to life. But that isn't the way it seems at this point. This is a dark time for Jesus. Judas has betrayed him with a kiss. Peter seeks to save Jesus with a sword. Both may have wondered how did things get so out of hand. Judas is motivated by greed. Peter is motivated by loyalty or love or pride. Who knows whatever else might have been motivating them that night. But guess what? Both Peter and Judas share a common goal at this point in the narrative. Both of them want to prevent Jesus from dying on the cross. And sometimes we want our way. We don't want God's unfolding plan and unfolding purposes to come to pass. Satan infiltrated the heart of Judas to accomplish Satan's great desire to kill the sinless son of God. Could Satan have known that it was the death of Jesus that is going to provide us with forgiveness and redemption and reconciliation? Had he known that, do you suppose he would have changed his plans? And had you known, had you known 
Had you known what God was going to do with that dark and difficult time in your life, had you known what God was going to do as he's inviting you to submit to him, to love him and to believe him and to obey him, had you known that God was at work trying to mold you and shape you and change you, you may have been a little more cooperative. In verse 55, Jesus asks the question, why have you come? Can you imagine if Judas said, you know, the reason why I've come is because you're a big, fat, stinking disappointment to me, Jesus. I'm here to betray you. I'm here to hand you over to the authorities. I'm here because you led me on to believe that you're the promised Messiah and you failed me in every way. In verse 55, when Jesus says, why have you come? Why are you treating me like a common criminal? Why have you come? Why are you treating me this way? Jesus sits down with them and teaches them. They've seized him. What are the charges? They're unable to articulate those charges. In verse 54, it says, how then could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? In verse 56, but all this is done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. Time doesn't allow me to outline all of the scriptures that are going to be fulfilled. But Jesus isn't going to just fulfill one scripture or two scriptures or five scriptures in the course of his life, he is going to fulfill upwards of 300 scriptures. It was God's will for Jesus to be arrested. It's his will to be handed over to wicked men. He allows Jesus to be unjustly handed over, to be unjustly tortured and unjustly killed. And think about it, God is powerful. He takes human beings, angels, he uses them to accomplish his plans and purposes independent of sinful human motives. And God can take your husband or your wife, or your children, or your boss, or this government, and its world, and demons, and demonic plans, and evil intentions to fulfill his plan for you. You see, you woke up this morning thinking it's the last day of 2017. And you're thinking, thank God it's the last day. For some of you, 2017 has been really, really hard. And tomorrow is going to be 2018. Jesus is going to provide the context. The scripture is going to be fulfilled. Jesus has repeatedly said, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to die. I'm going to come back to life. Your life is now providing you a context for what lies ahead. John MacArthur writes, Because Peter boasted too loudly, prayed too little, slept too much, acted too fast, he seemed invariably to miss the point of what Jesus was saying and doing. The Lord, the Lord therefore had to explain to him again what was happening was God's perfect plan, unquote. Perhaps in this last year, the Lord has invited you to consider that what's happened to you is a part of his plan and that what the future holds is a part of his plan and that part of that plan is going to include not better fitness, <laughs> but a better witness. <laughs> Not that you can just become a better person, but that the bitterness and the hatred can go away and that there can be fertile soil for forgiveness and reconciliation. Jesus is going to submit to the cross. Jesus is going to submit to betrayal and arrest. Jesus is going to submit all by himself. You know what I find remarkable about this? 
you don't have to submit all by yourself. Jesus said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. Even though at the end of the passage it says, and they all forsook him. Jesus will never forsake you. He will walk with you to the end of this day. And for those of you fortunate enough to wake up in the morning, he'll be with you next year. And he'll walk with you into that future. Preparing you for the plan that he has. And the plan, of course, is to encourage you to submit to the will of God, to submit to the word of God, and then submit to the work of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for these men and women. Lord, I thank you that that you really do have a plan. That, Lord, you want so much to change us. Lord, I don't want to be the person who acts with, with immaturity and carnality and violence. Lord, I want to be the person who acts with maturity and humility and submission to you. Lord, I pray that you would help us. Lord, I make no bones about the fact that some of us are going to make mistakes, and some of those mistakes are going to be awful. But Lord, I thank you, and I praise you, and I glorify you, that Lord, you're constantly reaching out. You're finding a way to correct our mistakes and to get us on track so that we can fulfill the plan that you have for us. And so Lord, again, not as an excuse to do what's wrong. Lord, we thank you that you're in control, that you have this world under control and you have this government under control and you have our family under control and you have our church under control and you have our lives under control. So Lord, I pray that you would bring with that a sense of confidence and peace in all that you have for us. And Lord, if we've acted in a way that is untoward, wicked. Lord, we pray that you would cleanse our hearts, that you would wash us and cleanse us and then reconcile us to yourself. And again, Lord, we pray, we pray that you would make good the plan that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen.